listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, good morning. I feel like I'm worshiping here this morning with the, uh, the elite of Crosspoint. You braved the storm. It's like I'm hanging out with Jim Cantori all morning. Uh, Rental mentioned it. Brad's out of town. He and Jennifer went down to Gainesville, Florida for a high school football game. And they will be back this time next week. I thought it was a long way to drive, but anyway, we're going to take a break from Romans today. We're going to be instead in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Pages are up on the screen. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to Read along with us. Uh, there are Bibles in the uh, trays underneath the chairs. Grab one of those. The pages are up there on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, please take that with you when you leave this morning. Uh, read it. Uh, consider it yours as a gift to you. Um, before we get into this text, I, I would like to, to pray, and, uh, and, uh, and then, we'll, yeah, then we'll get into it. Um, Lord, I am thankful for these folks here this morning, thankful that you have... Um, gathered us together around your word, around the work of your son, um, that, that Jesus Christ um, came to this world as a man, uh, that he yet today intercedes for us as fully God and fully man. Um, what a privilege it is then to know him, to be drawn into a, a relationship with him by your spirit. I pray that as we study your word that we would find uh, just reminders um, of these glorious truths that uh, that we have in Christ, the things that we have because of our um, union with him. And uh, I pray that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word this morning. Pray for things going on in children's ministry. We certainly ask that you would uh, be in and among um, the, uh, the volunteers and the, the children there. We pray that the gospel would be made known, um, not just with words, but also by the, the love and the kindness shown to them um, by the leaders there. And pray that you would bless us all this morning in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So we are in Luke chapter 5 verse 17 through 26. It's a story about how Jesus, spoiler alert, heals a man who is paralyzed. Um, up to this point in the gospel of Luke, uh, we, we've seen Jesus heal people. In fact, just before this, Jesus has healed a, uh, a leper. Um, so we, we know about Jesus, the healer, and if you've been reading Luke, and I know maybe most of you probably have not been reading it up to this point, it's important to know that, uh, that what happens here in this story is it takes a turn. It, it changes things. It ups the ante. <clears throat> We've seen, though, that Jesus' ministry is growing, uh, that people are coming from all over the world to, to hear him, to see him, to uh, be blessed by him in some way. Uh, and, and so that's where we, we pick up the story. So I'm going to read, uh, and, and I'll make some comments along the way. I hope that's not too annoying. Uh, and then I've got two really, really big points to make, and, uh, and, and that'll be that. So starting in verse 17, on one of those days, as he, meaning Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Let's pause there. Um, 
let's, let's set the stage. That's what this, that's what this passage right here, this, this verse is doing. It's, it's, it's revealing a few things to us. One, we've got, we've got some tension, right? Um, the Pharisees, the scribes, these are never ever the heroes of any of these gospel stories, the poor guys. They are always coming in looking for a way to debunk or criticize what Jesus is doing. And here in the Gospel of Luke, it, it is no different. In chapter 5, they come in ready, it would seem, for a bit of a fight. They're always skeptical. So we've got some tension being built up. But there's also a little note that Luke mentions here that I think is, is important because it sets our expectations up. He says that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And we haven't seen anybody but the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, but already we are meant to believe that, that something is about to take place that is incredible. Luke isn't mentioning that the, the power of the Lord is with him as a way of saying, this is new, this is different than before. He's saying it as a way of emphasizing something about Christ, about his work, about his person, what he has come to do, uh, and certainly what he will do here uh, in, in the next few minutes. Let's, let's keep going. Verse 18, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Well, now we know where we're going. <laughs> uh, he, he spares no time. Here we are. We are seeing firsthand something really incredible, really bold take place, aren't we? You've got a group of men. We don't know their names. We don't know their background. We don't really know much, if anything, about them, except that they have a friend whose name we also don't know, whose background we also don't know, who is paralyzed. We don't know for how long. We don't know what caused it. But we know that he is living a life, right, of suffering, of, of, of brokenness. His, his body is, is, is so broken that he has to be carried by these friends of his. That's the only way we can describe uh, these men is that they are his friends, clearly. This man's life surely has been marked by an incredible amount of, of humility as well. I mean, to be, to be dragged around Jerusalem on a cot by your friends. This man, he, he's, he's desperate. He, he's not really concerned about what, what people might think about him, right? Um, and there's so much activity here surrounding this man being brought before Jesus. They, they don't say a word. We don't get any dialogue from them. But, but we see again and again what they do. Right? Just, just going back through it, some men were bringing him. Bringing on a man, on a bed, a man. They, they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed. And then it says that they, uh, they left him in the midst before Jesus. They're, they, they are doing, right? They're acting. There's a lot of motion taking place here. And, and, and then there's a bit of a cliffhanger. 
There's, there's, there's this moment where they lay him before Jesus. I mean, put yourself, put yourself in the scene. Maybe this, this story might be a little too familiar to you, right? Some of you have probably heard this a thousand times from the moment you were born until today. And so I'm aware that as you hear this now, you may be tempted to just gloss over the bizarre reality of what is taking place here. Jesus is in a house. He's teaching his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're waiting for him to trip up, say something they, they perceive to be wrong-headed. And, and in the midst of that, they hear a scratching in the ceiling. It's not pests. It's not uh, poor construction. No, it is in fact, wouldn't you know, a group of men clawing their way through the roof, making a hole big enough to lower their friend from the ceiling onto the floor. That's crazy. Can you imagine being in that room, seeing that take place? I need you to, I need you to sense how bizarre this, this, this is. And yet we see something about the desperation of this man and his friends too, don't we? Uh, that, that they would go to such lengths... There's a crowd around the house, no problem. We'll go through the roof. What? They climb up on the roof and do all of that so that they can bring their friend before Jesus. And then verse 20 is the clincher. When he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. We, we, could, we could stop right there, couldn't we? Uh, that's, what, what an incredible... What an incredible statement to hear. Talk about this more uh, in a minute, but, but what were you expecting when they lowered the man through the roof? What, what are they there for if not to see their friend healed? We know that the power of the Lord is with Jesus to do just that thing. But that's not what he does. Instead, he, he utters the most powerful, most powerful uh, statement, declaration that, that anyone can ever be given. Man, your sins are forgiven you. The, the authority of Jesus to forgive sins is now at center stage. This is going to become the biggest issue in this, this passage. Before we move on, though, I, I think it's important to notice why he, he makes this statement. It says that when he saw their faith, their faith, not, not just the paralytic's faith, their faith of the men who brought him, not just the paralytic himself. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that in a second. Verse 22, or verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees, right, they've been waiting. They've been waiting to pounce. They began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? In other words, who is setting himself up in the place of God? Who, who is daring to stain the good name of our Lord by uttering statements like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, uh, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The Pharisees are suspicious of Jesus. It's not every day they hear someone declare other people's sins forgiven. And they rightly ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's an excellent question. It's, it's uh, very intuitive. They know what's at stake here in the things that Jesus has just spoken. Right? If, if I punch you in the face and someone else steps in and while your nose is still bleeding says, hey, you know what, I forgive you for hitting my buddy. Um, have I really been forgiven? It doesn't work that way, does it? No, no. The Pharisees know the only offended party when it comes to this man's sins, whatever they may be, is God. Only God can forgive the sins that have been committed against him. And they rightly then perceive exactly what Jesus is claiming about himself. The problem is they assume that Jesus cannot possibly have that kind of have that kind of connection to the Almighty. There's no way Jesus speaks for God, let alone is, in fact, God. They assume he's blaspheming. They, they, they charge him with this sin and, and, and move on. But Jesus, he knows, doesn't he? He knows what they're thinking. He can perceive it. He, he doesn't really even have to have any sort of divine abilities to know exactly what the Pharisees are getting at. And this is their M.O., and he looks at them and he says, okay, fine, fine. You see me making claims like this and I can understand how that would seem to be an easy thing to do, right? I can say whatever I want with impunity. There's no way that you could prove me wrong. There's no way that I can prove myself right. And if the burden of the proof is going to be on me, then let me do something that might, I don't know, corroborate this whole idea that his sins have been forgiven. And so he looks to the man and, and with the authority that we know Jesus has, he speaks to him and, and commands him to get up, to pick up his mat, to walk out and to go home. It's incredible. You can almost hear the Pharisees' mouths just drop as they just stare in disbelief and unbelief at the things that Jesus is doing, the things that he's saying. But verse 24 says it all. He, he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what this is all about, isn't it? There's this miraculous event that has taken place, but at the heart of it all, at the heart of the Pharisees' questions, at the heart of the reason this man was brought before Jesus in the first place, is really one big conundrum, which is, does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins. It is the most important question that you can ask. Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? If you get that wrong and you put your hope in him, how wasted has your life been? Uh, but if you get that wrong and, and you assume that he didn't, and you, and you didn't, come to him for forgiveness of sins, 
how tragic, how terrifying. Verses 25 and 26 round out the the story. Immediately he rose up, this man did. He rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on. The thing that he was carried in on, he carries out with him. And he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And that word extraordinary really means just that. The, the things that we have seen are out of the normal pattern of the way things work in this world. This is a paradox. I don't understand it. From the man being brought in, not through the door or even a window, but through the roof. To Jesus forgiving sins, to watching this man then get up and walk out. All of this is is amazing. Indeed, they have seen, we have seen some extraordinary things here. But what 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 does it all tell us? What 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 do we what do we walk away from this knowing about Jesus and, and about ourselves? I got two big points. Two big points. The first one is 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 tremendous. Jesus has authority over body and soul. Jesus has authority over body and soul. In verse 20, man, your sins are forgiven you. And then in verse 24, right, he makes it clear that even the healing he's about to embark on is so that the son of man, to prove rather that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. See, this is the issue, like we've been saying. Can Jesus, as just a a man, a good teacher, right? Can he, does he have the authority to say something like this? To to declare a man's sins forgiven? That's, That's what's at root here. That's the issue. And the answer is, yes. He he has that authority. He, he has the desire and the ability to carry out this very thing, to forgive the sins of this man. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Not because of anything they've done, but simply because the Lord has chosen to bless them in this way, to act in this way, in a way that only he can. 1 Timothy 2.5 rounds out the picture for us where Paul tells Timothy, there is one God. The Pharisees know that. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The, the needs of, of this paralyzed man were more than skin deep. Do you see that? Do you know that? Your, your needs, the, the greatest need that you have, the greatest difficulty and problem you face is, is so much more than skin deep. In this case, in the man's case, it, it, it goes beyond the quality of even his spine. It is on the heart level. 
deep in his soul, this man was not just paralyzed physically, he, he, he was paralyzed spiritually as well. Not to minimize the suffering this man had endured and experienced, but the reality is that his need was far greater. Forgiveness is what he needed. Forgiveness is what you and I need. And Jesus, praise God, has the authority to give it. Yeah. This man came for physical restoration, but he walked away, walked away, reconciled to his creator. Maybe you're not getting it. Maybe you're not seeing it. There's a temptation, I realize, for us to read these stories and, and, and gloss over it because we know, oh yeah, Jesus came to forgive sins. Oh yeah, no, Jesus, he's always doing stuff like this. You know, raising the dead to life and, and cleansing lepers and, and healing the blind and, and letting men who have never walked before get up and walk out of the room. Do you see how absurd it is? How comfortable we are with this notion of who Jesus is and what he's come to do? Praise God if you grew up in a home or in a church where you were familiar with this, where it's almost second nature to expect this of Jesus. But you've got to understand that in in Luke chapter 5, this sort of thing hasn't happened before. Put it in your mind. You need to see it this way. You need to see it this way. Otherwise, you will think that the points that I've just made are kind of ho-hum. And yet, no, I knew that. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. I mean, think of the desperation with which this man came into this room. The desperation that his friends channeled into to bringing him, lowering him through the roof and, and presenting him, laying him before Christ. Think of all of that and, and think of the best answer this man could have hoped for. Maybe he would be able to walk. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's really kind of a shot in the dark. But he doesn't even get that. Before anything else, he gets the greatest thing he could possibly be given. He is redeemed in his soul. But Jesus doesn't just have authority over the soul. And Jesus realizes how easy it would be for him to simply say something about this man's state of forgiveness without doing anything to, to prove it, to confirm it. And so Jesus then proceeds to heal his body. This healing is, obviously it's important. But I want you to see that it's complementary, not you look nice today, but you see how these two things go together? It's complementary. Jesus heals this man's body as proof proof of the divine authority that he has to forgive sins. And, and doesn't this kind of challenge then our, our expectations of him? The things that we maybe even pray for ourselves, for people that we love. Uh, people who, like this paralyzed man, are, are broken even in body. That, that, that Jesus would see that, and instead of going to that as his first act of compassion and kindness, chooses rather to deliver this man from, from the chains and bondage of sin. I think it challenges a, a bit of our expectations. Maybe it challenges the way that we pray 
for ourselves and for others, and, and, it, and it should, right? Do, do we expect Jesus to answer all of our prayers and, and, and to meet all of our physical needs, right, without having an actual awareness, though, in ourselves of, of the much deeper permanent need that we have? We, we, we are all like this paralyzed man, alienated from God. Uh, we are fallen. We have sinned. We have set ourselves up against our Creator. And, and when we come before Him, expecting, expecting Him to meet all of our needs, the, the last thing we would expect, perhaps, is that He would forgive sins, but that's exactly what He does. And He proves it not just by saying it and, and sending him on his way and saying, but, you know, the reality is your body's really not significant. No, he proves it by, by healing him. So, so this healing isn't just complimentary. It's also necessary. First um, Corinthians 15. Um, Paul is, is talking about the nature of the resurrection. He's talking about the nature of our resurrected bodies. And he he says this in, in verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Speaking of the body, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You know, miracles aren't guaranteed. In the Gospels, maybe it's easy to walk away with the impression that any time we come before Jesus with some sort of physical need, that, that he will, is maybe even bound to prove himself by, by answering that, by delivering on that, by granting us what we ask. And that's, that's not true. Um, Jesus could easily have sent this man away on his stretcher. He would have received the greatest gift imaginable. Um, and, and not only that, though, I, I think, though, sometimes when we come to Jesus for things like this, like this paralyzed man came before Jesus, we maybe miss the big picture. Not to minimize in any way the, the very real suffering that I know many of you are dealing with, but, but it is to say this, that, well, even Lazarus, after he was raised from the dead, died again. You think about that? E even this man he hadn't met his ultimate destiny by walking out of that room. And what Paul is saying to us in 1 Corinthians 15 is similar, which is that, that there is a glorious state that is awaiting anyone, everyone who is in Christ. It's not a bodiless state. It's not some sort of abstract floating out there in the air state. It is an embodied and embodied state of glorification as we are with our creator who gave us our bodies and longs to redeem not just our souls, but, but all of us. Our, our savior, our God, is interested in the whole person. Um, 
but but maybe maybe we're, we're tempted to to overlook that and be and maybe even respond to to bad theology right uh and, and so for example we we have so rejected the health wealth and prosperity gospel rightly rightly but in so doing we've actually we've actually over-spiritualize the work that Christ has come to do. Uh, the, the, the body is important. Is there no room in your gospel for the redemption of our bodies? This is all part of what the Lord has intended from the beginning. Praise God. But likewise, I think we can, we can go the other direction as well and, 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 and so materialize the person and work of Jesus. So define his work to the, the things that are important to us in this life. Um, that, that we have no, no room and see really no need for reconciliation with God. Just some things to, to think about. Uh, are you guilty of either of those things? They can both sometimes look good and deeply theological and yet be very wrong and, and completely miss the mark. Now, Jesus, he has authority over body and soul to redeem us entirely. This is the point of Luke chapter 5. That Jesus has all authority to give us exactly what we need. It's important, though, that we see this, this second point, which is that the only appropriate response to, to this news, to the authority of Jesus, the only appropriate response is, is faith. It's faith. And, and, and in this story, we see three ways that this faith kind of works itself out. I've already gotten to some of it, uh, but, you know, in verse 20, Jesus, it, it, he, uh, Luke is very clear that Jesus saw their faith and, and then... And then acted. Um, and and what's, what's interesting is that these men were exhibiting faith before Jesus had said or done a thing. Uh, they, they had heard enough, they knew enough of him to know that by coming before him and, and just in desperation letting him take the rest, uh, that, that he might, that he would. Um, this faith, though, that they demonstrate that the paralyzed man, but also his friends, demonstrate is, is very active, isn't it? You know, I mentioned earlier, they don't have any dialogue. There's not a whole lot that they say. They don't say anything, really. But man, they've got a lot of verbs. I'm a grammar guy. Verbs are important. Verbs, right? They show us something about these men. They are doing. They are moving. They, they're seeking Jesus. They're bringing this man. They're carrying him. They're lowering him through the roof. They're digging the roof apart. There is so much action here. Even at the end, when Jesus sends the man <clears throat> away, he says, get up, walk, pick up your mat, go home. He could have just said, hey, man, rise to your feet for me. No. Nah. Now, the faith of this man, the faith of, of his friends is, is active. It's so determined, right? It's desperate. Look at, look at what they do. It reminds me a lot of, of James, the letter of James, where he talks about this very thing. Faith without works is dead. 
And to even call this sort of thing work seems kind of silly. Do you think these men really thought about it as labor and work? Especially at the end of it all, when they received these, these incredible statements, when they watched their friend walk out, surely they didn't chalk it up and say, man, look at all the things we did. No. They knew Jesus had done it all, and yet we see just how desperately they, desperately they tried to, to bring their friend before him just so he could prove it. Their faith was active. And, and likewise, our, our, our faith, right? If, if we're to, to follow in the steps of these men, our response to, the, to the, the amazing authority of Jesus to forgive sins should be no less active. Yeah, if you've been told you, you have an incurable disease and, and then someone tells you he has the only cure, Surely you would do whatever you could to get to him, wouldn't you? No, our, our faith is, is more than just believing, assenting to something, thinking Jesus maybe can or can't do this or that and moving on. No, our, our, our faith, the faith that we're called to have is, is active. Are you seeking Christ where he can be found? Are you desperately searching for him? The truth is you're if you don't know him, lost, and, and he will find you. But even as a believer, right, there's an element of our walk of faith that, that calls us to step forward. Being, being here on a Sunday morning or reading the word with others or by yourself, seeking the Lord through prayer, these are all means, right, that we can be active and engaging and pursuing our Savior. Their faith wasn't just active, though, and I really want to zero in on this. Their faith was communal. I really, I'm always struck by this every time I read it, how Jesus notes their faith. And I think our view of Christianity, our view of the gospel, is so individualized, so self-centered, that we don't have a concept for Jesus taking into account the faith of others in my own sanctification. Right? It's the American way, isn't it? I built myself. I made this. Look what I did. Look what I've accomplished. I'm someone who has to be listened to and reckoned with. No, in, in, in the gospel, in the work of Christ, that has no place. That has no room. This man, by the way, had he taken that attitude on himself, would still be laying in his bed in the street. You realize that? No, he needed these friends. He needed these men to lift him up. But that wasn't itself enough. These men themselves had to have the same degree of faith and trust and hope in the work that Christ might do as the paralytic. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says to, to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus coming back. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill, fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 1.11 and 12, Paul writes to this church and he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, <clears throat> both yours and mine. 
There's really no room in the New Testament for rogue Christians. There's, there's none. Doggone it, Jesus himself gathered around him 12 guys, and he's God. Now, we need one another. We do. I hope you see that. You know, because you may be thinking, oh, well, no, I, I believe that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. I believe that Jesus has authority even over my body. He is in total control of my life, and I put all of my hope in him. You can say that, but like Jesus himself asks, which is easier, to say this, that, and the other, or to actually do things in line with it? One of the ways that we align ourselves with the hope of Christ is to be among his people. Don't tell me you, you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and walk by yourself. I don't believe you. You think you can do this alone? Why do you need Jesus? No, 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 no. The faith that is on display here is, is one of a community of people. All of whom believed and put their hope in Christ. And in desperation came seeking him. Do you have these people in your life? Not just as, as someone who's not a believer, but as a believer, do you have these people in your life? People who, when you are incapable of coming before Christ on your own because of whatever circumstance, whether it is your own sin or the sin of someone else against you or just your own brokenness and frailty, for whatever reason, do you have people who will spot that, who know you well enough to know when you're in that place, who will pick you up and bring you before Christ? Do you have those people? Do you have those people? That's why the church is so important. That's why what we're doing right now is so important. And it's, what, it's why what happens tomorrow with one another is so important. That's uh, why we value membership. These are all means by which we tether ourselves to one another and, and, and then find, find people who will back us up and bring us before Christ. Not only do you have these people, are you this kind of person? You know, if your only contact with other believers, with fellow brothers and sisters is on Sunday morning, if that's the only time that you are in contact with them, um, you're not one of these people. You need to hear that. We should be calling one another, texting one another, inviting one another over for dinner, picking into each other's lives. We need that. You need that. You need to serve the church. You need to serve one another in that way. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Did you catch that? By serving one another, we become conduits of the grace of God. He goes on to say all of this in order that in everything God may be glorified. That's what this is about. And honestly, that's the third way that this faith of theirs shines forward in this text, is that it is God-exalting. The very end, verses 25 and 26, we see, we see the paralytic rise up and walk out, but he doesn't stop. He, he's glorifying God on the way. 
He's, he's singing praises to Jesus as he leaves. And then everyone there who witnessed this, who saw these events, they, they, they respond the same way. They glorify God. That, that is the end, that's the, the ultimate goal of Christ's work, of Christ's authority over sin, is that we would glorify God with righteousness and holiness under, undergirding us. That's the goal of his authority over even the body, is that it would all serve to glorify God to bring praise to his name as we respond in faith and put our hope in him. What about those Pharisees, though? Uh, you know, there they are. They're, they're standing there, sitting there the whole time, just kind of picking at what Jesus does. They, they are opposed to Jesus. They hear him say these words of forgiveness. Instead of responding with hope and joy, they respond with jealousy and, and, and anger. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Um, instead of responding in joy to this man's healing, even. Uh, you, you, know, you would expect, if that had happened, that, that the account would let us know, right? That Luke would have said, and then even the Pharisees and scribes believe, but that's, that's not what happens. Now, the, the question that they ask is, is a question then that they continue to ponder even after then. Who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? And they don't know the answer. But, but, but you can answer that. Or at least this is a question that you will have to answer. Now, who is Christ? Does he have authority to forgive sins? And if he does, why are you not putting your hope in him? Because that is what you need most of all. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are absolutely right. Um, it is so easy, relatively speaking, to, to say one thing, to make a claim as great as the forgiveness of sins, how incredible that is. That is easy to say. And, and, and yet you rightly point out to, to us that, that there's a necessity here that, that to confirm this work in the soul, you have, you have chosen to, to heal this man's body. But I think likewise you put us to the same sort of test. You, you, you turn the tables even on the Pharisees. They put their money where their mouth is. Would we, Lord, put our money where our mouth so often is that, oh yeah, no, Jesus, he has forgiven me of my sins. He's, he has authority to do that. Do we really believe that? Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see ourselves rightly, to see one another rightly. Are we putting our hope in Jesus? Lord, we thank you that he does have the authority to do just that, to forgive sins. What a grace that is and a gift that is that we so often overlook for things that we assume are bigger and better and more theological and, and thoughtful and important and relevant to today's issues. But Lord, the biggest question we have, the biggest need that we have is 
whether or not we can find forgiveness. We have offended you. We have sinned against you. We are broken. Just as this man, this paralyzed man himself was broken, we too are suffering from the fall. So Lord, I I pray that we would, all of us, turn and trust in you. That we would come to you because you have the authority over our lives, our very souls. Forgive us for our, all the ways in which we have rebelled. Lord, thank you for your, for your great love of us, your great compassion toward us, and your boldness to put yourself forward. Then in, in, in Luke, but also even today, you, you are not ashamed, you are not hesitant to give out forgiveness we will only come to you. So Lord, for those here this morning who have never done that, who don't know you, I pray that you would draw many to faith. Maybe not even right now, but over time, I pray that by the, the, the slow, faithful work of your Holy Spirit, that you would chip away at hardness of heart, that you would give faith that we may receive forgiveness and reconciliation to you. And for those here this morning who know you, I pray that you would protect our hearts from becoming cold to to this truth. I pray that you would help us to develop relationships with one another that are just this sort, where we propel one another to Christ, where we pursue one another and carry one another's burdens in love. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.